Tonight we're going to read two things in anticipation of our sermon. The first is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We have been working through the questions and answers in the back of this little book. It is our confession book. And in that book, we've been reading through the Ten Commandments and what the confession, or rather the catechism, says about each one of the commandments. And I'm going to read first questions 79 through 81, and then we'll turn our attention to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Question 79 asks, what is the Tenth Commandment? The answer is the Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Question 80, what is required in the Tenth Commandment? The answer is the Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. And then question 81, what is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The answer, the Tenth Commandment forbids all discontentment with our own position, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions or affections to anything that is his. That is our confession tonight. Now turning to Romans chapter 7, where I'll be preaching from tonight in verses 7 through 12. I realize we pick up what Paul is saying in the middle of a longer argument, but I trust that God will bless just the portion that we're reading here tonight. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7, this is the very Word of God. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And this is God's word. Do you ever wonder what he would be like if we had no commandments at all? If a number of weeks ago when we started this portion of our catechism, there were no Ten Commandments to read, do you think your life would be pretty much the same? That nothing really would be missing? The commandments simply fill out some things that you already know. We've come to the end of our explanation of the Ten Commandments in a shorter catechism, and especially tonight we look at the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. And in this passage, Paul explains the tremendous benefits of the law of God in general, and then he specifically uses the example of the Tenth Commandment, that is of coveting. In fact, he notes three reasons why the law of God is so good, why it benefits us. And I want to walk through those three things that are good for us or benefits for us tonight from this passage. Why do we need the law of God? I'll give you three reasons why. And in each case, very interestingly, the Tenth Commandment and the law against coveting illustrates our need for each one of those benefits, each one of those reasons the law of God is good. Isn't that interesting? 
So starting with the first thing that Paul says for us in verse 7, I'll read it again. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would, have not, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. The first reason why we need the law of God, the benefit the law has for us, is because according to the, uh, Paul, law, the law identifies sin for us. It shows us where sin is. Now, I need to explain that a little bit. Maybe sometime back, many months ago, when we started this series, you might remember Pastor Dan preached a sermon about the moral law. He explained the moral law and that he was given at creation. And obviously, creation happened way before Exodus 20 and Mount Sinai or Deuteronomy 5, and that moral law was in existence before the law was ever given at Mount Sinai in in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And this moral law, because he was given at creation, is known in some sense by all people. It has been written on the consciences of all, through the, though their understanding of the law, if you don't have the scriptures, is far from comprehensive. That's what our confession of faith means when it says in chapter 19 that God gave this moral law to all people at creation. So we can say that all people know, even if you're here tonight and you're not a believer in Christ, I can still say that the law against murder and the law against stealing and even the law against coveting in some sense is already written on your heart. You know it is. You might not understand everything about it, but you know there is a God who requires you to obey his law and basically what that law requires. So if that's true, then what does the Apostle Paul mean in our passage when he says, I would not have known what it meant to sin if the law had said, do not covet. The Apostle means two things by that, and I want to explain that to you. And both of these reasons help us understand this first benefit, this first reason why the law is good for us, because the law identifies sin for us. The first way in which that is true is this. The commandments make clear to us what we would otherwise excuse as normal. We would try to deceive ourselves into thinking that coveting, that wanting for ourselves what is not ours and pursuing it with a desire that if we had it, we would finally be at peace... We might delude ourselves into thinking that kind of passion or desire in our hearts is a perfectly normal part of life. It's not difficult to understand why that would be. Even though we do have the commandments, that still nags at our hearts. Just think of how often you'll be asked, if you haven't been asked already, what do you want for Christmas? Have you been asked that question? I have. It's a very ordinary kind of question, one that everyone asks everyone else in your family. If you're exchanging names and extended family, maybe you do some kind of gift exchange at work. Someone will say, make a list, write down what you want. And that question may simply be for information. It's harmless enough. But the question might also assume that it is perfectly normal to always want more and more and more, that we should want more. That that's human, and that's fine, that's good. And if we don't want more, then something's wrong with us. Why wouldn't you want more, something better? 
I can remember a couple of years ago, my parents saying to me, my parents who now, who are 80 plus, saying to me, Jeff, we really don't want anything else. We're actually cutting back in our lives. We're trying to give things away. Please don't give us more things. And I remember thinking to myself, how very quaint of them, (laughs) that they don't want anything else. It struck me as very unusual. It never occurred to me in that moment that wanting more and more and more for yourself actually may not be good. It's actually contrary to the way that God created us. And then into this world in which we're told you should have more, you should want more, you deserve more, comes this commandment that says you shall not covet and if it had not been for this, covenant, uh, uh, for this commandment about coveting, I think it is fair to say that not only the Apostle Paul, but many of us would also struggle with understanding clearly what it means for us to set our desire on things that God has not given. This commandment helps me see that reckless wanting of more and more may be normal in our world, but it is not good, it is not normative, it is not what God desires. That's what I mean first, by the law showing us our sin. It helps denormalize things that seem very ordinary to us. The second thing, this, I would not have known what it is to covet unless the law said not to covet, The second thing that this helps us see in terms of our understanding of sin is that we are often ignorant not only of what is sin, but also of how offensive it is. Paul says in this first phrase, I would not have known what it is to sin. He means not only the content of sin, he means also the offensiveness of sin. Let me use an example. This is not a true-to-life example. I want to give that disclaimer. Imagine my wife buys me a gift certificate for no apparent reason. She actually does that, by the way. That part's not made up. And then she buys it from me to Jimmy John's. If you know me, you know I love going to Jimmy John's. And she buys me this gift certificate And she slips it on my desk that when I lift up my Bible and I'm studying for a sermon, I lift my Bible and there it is, a gift card to Jimmy John's. Imagine that she writes $10 on it and puts it there in a gift little card, slips it on my desk, and I begin writing a sermon on the 10th commandment, and I find this gift card, and it has on the envelope, to my awesome husband... That part might be a little made up. Imagine me opening the card, looking at it, and saying slowly to her when I see her, well, thank you very much, dear. I appreciate that, I guess. But you know what? It's not very much. You really can't get much of a sandwich for $10 at Jimmy John's anymore. I'm starting to wonder, because it's only $10, whether you really appreciate me at all. That's not much of a gift. (laughs) Well, if you're listening to this story, your first reaction might might be to say, you ingrate. How offensive. Somebody does something nice for you, and the first thought that you have is to treat that person and that gift disrespectfully. You're offensive not only to the gift, but to your wife, the gift giver. 
The reason I use this illustration is because the same thing happens with us relative to the law. When we covet, even when we do so in a way that seems carefully hidden and normal in our world, we not only break a law, we're not only offensive in terms of that commandment, we also offend God. It's offensive to the lawgiver. We tell him we do not appreciate who he is and everything he has done. If only God would do more of what we want, our lives then would be complete. And so when Paul says to us we need the law to identify our sin, he means it both in terms of the content of our sin, that our sin would not be normalized, and secondly, we need to understand the impact of sin, that is, it is an offense to God. That's the first benefit of the law, that it shows us our sin. The second thing that Paul tells us is a benefit of the law comes in verse 8, and I'm going to read that again. He said, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. What does it mean that once the law came, it produced in me covetousness? Does the law actually force us to sin? Does the law lead us to sin? It's a bit of a difficult thing to explain, so I'm going to use another illustration. And this morning I talked to those of you who are nine. Tonight I want to talk to those of you who are about 12. When I was about 12, there was a hardware store in town that I would go to for this and that for my parents. They recognized me there. I grew up in a very small town. And when I went to look around, something really caught my eye. On a shelf about eye level, there was a red AM battery-powered radio. And I loved to lay in my bed at night, my parents sometimes assuming that I was asleep, and I would listen to Twins Baseball on a radio that I had to put on my shelf above me. And I thought if I only had a small battery-powered radio, I could snuggle under the covers, I could stick it close to my ear, it would be perfect. The only problem was the radio was $17, and I didn't have that money. But I thought about it, and I told myself how much better my life would be with that radio. I knew it was wrong to take it, but I really wanted it. I thought I could take it, and no one would notice. And guess what? I did take it, and no one did notice. And I can remember walking home from the hardware store about two and a half blocks, and here's the funny thing about it. Not only was my heart a bit heavy because I had stolen something that was not mine, there was also something just a little bit exciting about the fact that I had stolen something and gotten away with it. My heart coveted something that was not mine, and the fact that I broke the law of coveting and then stealing to take it actually revealed something about my heart, and there was some kind of perverse pleasure in the act of coveting and then stealing. I'm wondering if that resonates with any of you, because that seems to be what Paul is identifying. Not that, sin crea- not that the law creates sin in us, 
But what the law does is show us a line that in our sinful inclinations, we say, if that's the line, then I'm going to cross it. Now, some of you might laugh and say, Jeffrey, when you were 9 and 10, 11 and 12, you were not a very good boy. My mother can testify to you about that. If they come to visit again, that's probably true. But doesn't that desire to cross the line and do it because we just want to do it Isn't that true for many of us with sin? I want to give you a very simple example. It's a little test case for you. Have you ever driven your car down the road and driven faster than the speed limit just because you could? You may have even explained it in your heart by saying, I'm a better driver than all these other people who need to observe the law. I'm also very capable of maintaining control at this higher speed. In fact, if there were only drivers like me, there wouldn't even need to be speed limits. I'm that good. Do you see how the law drawing a line for us then helps us see the way our sins rebel against the law. It's not as though the law against coveting or stealing or the law against speeding creates this sin, but your sinful heart is actually enticed by a limit to cross it. And Paul says this is a good use of the law. It's actually good that this happens. Why can he say this is good that it happens? He's not saying that it's good that our hearts want to cross these lines. But he says it's good that our desires are exposed. It's good that how deep and sinful these desires are actually is known. It is not just that we sometimes sin. It is even at times we like the idea of sinning. We want to know what the limits are so we can just simply cross them. If you think that's a problem only with your heart and mine... St. Augustine is a very famous story in his confessions about when he was young, he went with his friends into his neighbor's yard to steal some pears from the pear tree. He and his friends shook the tree and a lot of them fell down, but they only picked up very few to eat. The rest they either left on the ground or they threw to some pigs. And later reflecting on this in his confessions, he said the reason he did it He said, I only pick them so that I could steal. I love nothing in it. Not the taste of pears. Not that I was hungry. The reason I loved doing it is because I loved the idea of stealing. It is good that the law provokes us to reveal the depth of our sinful hearts. That's the second benefit Paul says in these verses about the goodness of the law and how coveting, the law especially against coveting in the 10th commandment, reveals our hearts. Which brings me to the third way in which Paul says the law is good. It shows us what our sin is, both in content as well as offensiveness to God. It also provokes us to sin in a way that reveals the depth of our sinful heart. We see a line and we want to cross it. And finally, in verses 9 through 11, this is the majority of Paul's writing in this section. 
He says the law is good because it shows the end of ourselves. Let me read again verses 9, 10, and 11. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That last verse is a summary statement. Before it comes this explanation of the third benefit of the law, that it shows the end of ourselves. In these verses, Paul is being autobiographical, that's fairly apparent. He's referring to two periods in his particular life. First, there was a time when he considered himself alive apart from the work of Jesus. He lived as a Jew of Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. If you would have walked up to Paul when he was still Saul before the road of Damascus, to Damascus, if you would have walked up to him before that and he was there in the streets of Jerusalem and asked him if he was spiritually alive, he would have said, of course I am, I keep the law. But But did he really understand the law? especially what it meant to covet. Did he really understand that to want something that God has not given with a passion that is not God-directed is the very heart of coveting? Or to put it differently, did he understand at that point in his life that by his desire to chase down and to murder followers of Jesus with a deep passion, he was actually offending the 10th commandment? Paul says it wasn't, however, until he started to understand the depth of the law and what it revealed about his heart that he could later say, as he does in this chapter, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is also what happens to us when we come to understand the law. We come to understand that all the props that we have set up for ourselves, all the ways that we seek to impress other people, all the external appearances that we keep up. If you remember that British television show, Keeping Up Appearances, Mrs. Bouquet, Mrs. Buckets, she was so dedicated to making sure her neighbors only saw what she wanted them to. And the show over and over It's an illustration that no matter how much she tried, she couldn't keep them from seeing all the ugliness in life. Guess what? God sees it all. And the instrument that God uses in order to show that we are not what we pretend to be is the law of God. He strips us bare. He shows us that we are not perfect and how we will never attain it. And we see even the desires of our heart and how we pursue these things, no matter how good they may appear externally. Apart from Jesus Christ, our hearts are hard and cold and run from God. And when we see that we are at the end of ourselves, then we have to ask ourselves whether or not we will seek our fullness in things other than God or whether the law leads us to a hopelessness 
that we turn from to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us tonight to seek those things that are above where Christ is seated. It doesn't mean that you're called to abandon your family, your friends, your jobs, your community, your world. What it is to say is that your expectation about what will bring you fulfillment and satisfaction and peace will never be found in creation. What lies at the very heart of the 10th commandment is the reality that the created order, as good as it is, and God said when he created it all, it is good, it is very good, this created order will be used by the hearts of human beings to try to substitute for peace with the creator. And what happens in our hearts is we seek to find peace apart from peace with God through Jesus Christ is that we will feed that passion We will feed that insatiable desire with more and more and more and more, telling ourselves as we covet more things, more honor, more people. Whatever it is that we say, we just need more of that thing in order to be whole, to find peace, to be satisfied finally. Whatever it is we tell ourselves, I just need more of that. The 10th commandment says you don't need more of the created order. You need peace with God. And when the commandment leads us to the end of ourselves, it points our hearts to look all around us, then we come to the inevitable conclusion that the 10th commandment does not minimize our lives, it actually maximizes them. It points us to the desire to serve Christ, to follow Him, to rest in Him. And then the heart of coveting that is exposed by the 10th commandment. And that shows us the end, the utter futility of trying to find our peace in the created order. Then the law actually puts a hard stop to the reality we will ever be fulfilled in this order and points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we started this series of sermons, I said, perhaps some of you wondered when I said, I've never preached a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. It wasn't as though that I'd never preached sermons on any of the commandments I had. It wasn't as though I'd never preached commandments on the law of God. I've preached many of them. I had just never preached a series of sermons success, I was going to say successfully, that's not what I meant, successively through the Ten Commandments. And having done so, what impresses me is really what is at the heart of the Tenth Commandment. That is, the law is good. Paul says that in this chapter. The law is genuinely good. We're thankful for it. It shows us the character of God, our own sin, and what it means to follow after Christ. All of that is good. But if the law does not ultimately point us to hopelessness apart from Jesus Christ, we have not understood the law. So that I hope as you reflect on these sermons, your thoughts are not first of all simply about what the 6th or 7th or 8th or ninth or 10th commandment or any of the first four mean. You would look at the content of those commandments And in your heart you would say, I am thankful for Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer?
Father, there is nowhere else to go. That was what Jesus said to his disciples in interacting with them. He was asked, where can we go? Because you alone have the words of eternal life, and that's true, Lord. And that's not only true in comparison to other religions, it's also true in comparison with the law. And we do confess tonight that often we try to find our satisfaction in simply keeping the law. Sometimes we've been told that. If you're only a better person, if only you hadn't sinned, if only you were more orderly, if only your life was more put together, everything would be fine. And while it is true that your law is good and we ought to strive to follow it, the law itself is a key that can never unlock our relationship with our God. And so we give thanks to you tonight that in Jesus Christ, he has fulfilled every requirement of the law. He never coveted. He only wanted to do what his father said. In fact, he said, my food is to do the will of my father in heaven and to accomplish the purpose for which I was sent. Lord, as we come to know Jesus... And as we follow him, we pray that our food would be the same. That as much as our hearts are trained, naturally are bent, and as our hearts are trained to long for things, more and more things, we would see the thing that we actually need in order for our heart to be fully nourished is not another part of creation. It is our Savior. It is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we know that to be true, and may we embrace him for all that he is. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.